Hello, and welcome to For Your Listening Pleasure, a podcast focused on talking with interesting and diverse individuals and discussing how their backgrounds shape them into the people they are today. I am your host, Mallory Waxman. Today on the podcast, I am excited to be welcoming Madeline Denono. Madeline is the president and CEO of the Gina Davis Institute on Gender and Media, the leading research-driven nonprofit working within the entertainment and media industries to foster diversity, equity, and inclusion, create gender balance, and reduce negative stereotyping in family entertainment media. Madeline leads the Institute's strategic direction, fundraising, programs, research, financial, and operational activities. I hope you enjoyed this conversation as much as I did, and links to the Institute's website and social media pages can be found in this episode's show notes. Madeline, thank you so much for joining me today. It's such an honor to have you on the podcast. Would you mind just introducing yourself? Hi, everyone. Madeline DiNono, and I have the privilege of serving as the president and CEO of the Gina Davis Institute on Gender and Media. So what I love about your story is that you had a really unique career um, journey. You were in marketing, but you also have been in the entertainment business. Can you kind of talk to us a little bit about what that journey looked like? Because you made some moves during your career path. Yes. And I think everybody has to assess and navigate uh, their, their pathway. Some may be intentional, some may be accidental. And for me, I always loved entertainment. And I have the very good fortune to be able to do a lot of internships in entertainment when I was in my teens. And that was the direction I wanted to go in. But as everyone can imagine, um, if you're fortunate enough to graduate from university, which I was the first person in my family to be able to do that. And it's difficult if you don't have a lot of connections. Neither of my parents had the opportunity to go to college. They did vocational um, and they were and they did very well for themselves. But it's not like my parents could just call in their friends and get me a great job. So it was my internships that helped me get into my jobs. And, you know, that led me also to move away a little bit from entertainment and more into consumer packaged goods because that was the opportunity. And then after I reached uh, more of a mid-level career, a level of success, I decided I really wanted to go back into entertainment. And that journey is what led me uh, out actually to leave New York and, uh, and journey, you know, to California, which is where, where I am now. And then The other pivot came when I um, was running um, a company and it happens, right? You think the job's going to be great and you get there and you're like, "Uh, uh," and I knew it wasn't going to work out. Uh, I did as much as I could, but I knew I had to move on. And at the same time, a very dear friend of mine uh, was very, very unhappy in her job, she had wanted to make a transition and she died very unexpectedly and she never got to make that transition. And so that gave me pause. It was like a boulder fell on my head. And I thought, okay, before you just jump into the next gig, take a beat. And then the idea, you know, we get these thought bubbles in our heads. The idea for me was, hmm, 
could I use my power for good? And all of us, I believe most of us are involved in some type of service, volunteering, sitting on boards, whether it's PTA or whatever's going on in your life. And I thought, hmm, could I kind of flip it? I need to work, but, and I need, I want to stay in entertainment. I'm not going to throw away 30 years of being in entertainment, but is there something I could do that's more impact oriented, more pro-social oriented? That, that is the journey that led me uh, to join Gina uh, and, and build the Institute uh, with her, you know, vision. Um, And, and that's how that's been for 13 years. And it's funny because uh, when I met Gina, I had all these grandiose plans and I said to her, what do you want? And she said, I want world domination. And I said, okay. And the first thing I did was called up a friend who had connections at the United Nations and put her in a closing keynote that uh, former President Clinton had spoken the year before. I'm like, oh, you said you wanted world domination. Uh, and that's kind of how it's been for the past, you know, 13 some odd years. So we're definitely going to get into everything you do at the Institute and what the Institute does. But you did touch on one point that I want to dive a little bit deeper in. And it was that you weren't happy at your role where you were at. And you also had this dear friend that also wasn't happy that passed away unexpectedly. And I feel like I've been in situations as many others I'm sure have where you're really not happy at your job, but it's a job. You look at the economy, we're on a possible recession coming in. You might have kids, you need help with your mortgage or health insurance, especially in this day and age, but you're kind of really not happy. What would you tell those listeners who are kind of in that position to take that leap or what are those first few steps you would recommend? Well, one of the things that I always tell people and particularly uh, younger people who are graduating and starting their career path is you have to build your network and don't judge a book by a cover. So for example, anyone you meet is an opportunity for someone to possibly help you. It doesn't matter that they may not have a career that is anywhere near the direction you want to go in. You never know who lives next door to someone, who goes to to some kind of church with someone, whose children play on a soccer team together, who there's a million, who's somebody's hairstylist. You don't know. So Every time you meet someone, look at it as an opportunity because you don't see the thousand some odd people standing behind them. So if you're building your network, uh, then you want to lean into your network so that if you're not happy, you start that network and you start exploring, hey, I may want to make a move. Do you know somebody who works somewhere? And that's actually been the beauty of LinkedIn because you can even look up somebody on LinkedIn and say, hey, I saw you're connected to so-and-so. Do you think you could set up a 15-minute informational interview for me? Uh, and, and and you know, you have to kind of make that plan. Um, now, the second thing I would say for people who are have been working uh, a number of years, and, and I know it's really hard to do it, but one of the things I did when I was in my 20s, late 20s, is I started my 
and I'm not going to use this because it's an explicit word, but I started my FU fund and it was a forced savings. Uh, and I forced myself to create a fund so that I knew that if I had to walk out the door or I got laid off or something happens, right? That I had at least a, a year. I mean, it started smaller, but I built up that I knew I had at least a year of expenses. And that would give me runway at that age. Now, you know, at my tender age, it'd probably be two or three years, but but nonetheless, and it was it was a really hard thing to do, but it gave me so much power um, and control, which was really important for me. And knowing that I didn't have to be afraid and I wouldn't have to stay in, say, a toxic work situation because I knew I had my FU fund. So that's that was that's another way um, also that I planned for. That's a great piece of advice for both. Like if you're starting, I think networking is so important. I love LinkedIn. It's where I actually get a lot of my podcast guests because you're able to see what people are doing. And it's turned into almost like a thought leader platform where you're listening to people's voices or their stories. And you're like, I want to know more. Can we talk? And then that's kind of how I end up getting a lot of guests, but also that point where you do have that money because that is something that will help you leave a toxic or unhappy work situation without a doubt. For those listeners who maybe don't know, they've heard obviously of Gina Davis, but maybe not about the Institute. Can you tell us what the Institute is? Essentially, we're changing the world one story at a time. And we're doing it through research and advocacy and by garnering the support of the entertainment and media community uh, to create more diverse and inclusive content. And what I love about the Institute is that from 2007, 2017, you guys did this benchmark study that looked at all children's film during that time to really figure out, was there equal representation? That's putting it very lightly, but would you mind kind of diving into more about that report and the findings as well? Cause it's fascinating when you hear it. Sure. So as you said, it was 2007 to 2017, we called the Gina Benchmark Report, and it actually looked at the largest grossing films from each year that uh, were GPG, PG-13, so kids and family. Uh, and what we found is that female-centric films generated 55% more at the box office, more money, and also diverse films where there were diverse co-leads generated the most money. Because with the work that we do, everyone understands the social imperative. We all want to feel belonging. We all want to see ourselves in the world of make-believe, in the content that we're consuming. But for a lot of companies, they need a little more motivation. And it was really important to show the business imperative that you're leaving significant funds on the table if you're not creating content that is diverse and can reflect our society as it is. But what I love is that what you guys did with the study, with the results, and can you talk to our listeners, how did you use data? Because data is powerful. Um, numbers tell a story. How did you guys use those findings to help start shaping the conversation in Hollywood and then also just globally as well. So Gina's vision from the very beginning 
was to use data as a currency to drive our advocacy. And in parallel with that, uh, because she is still a working actor, uh, wanted to make sure that we could be collaborative with the entertainment industry versus carrot stick. And, and, and so therefore, uh, you know, we've always taken the data directly to the content creator. So many of your listeners, of course, they've heard of Gina Davis, but they may not have heard of us because we're more of a B2B than a B2C. We're more interested in making sure that the content that you see by yourself or with your children is inclusive and diverse and has gender parity versus telling you to go yell at the studios to do it. It's like if it gets done and that's what you're being served up, and we could have a whole new generation of children who aren't weighed down with a lot of biases, then we've done our job. Um, and so we've always taken whatever study we may have, going back to 2004, directly to uh, content leading content creators, studios, networks, et cetera, to say, here it is, how can you do better? And then measuring and measuring and measuring and measuring year after year, just to keep pushing that needle, pushing that needle forward. And then I understand you guys won a big grant from Google. And from that, you guys have the Gina Davis inclusion quotient. Can you explain what that is and how that technology is actually helping the Institute's mission? So we're very, very fortunate to have won a technology grant, as you mentioned, from Google. And the question that was being answered is, could an infusion of AI and machine learning help us do our research deeper um, and quicker? And, and, and that's the question we wanted to answer. So what we were able to do, and we found wonderful partners with uh, USC, uh, uh, Viterbi School of Engineering, led by Dr. Sri Narayan with his uh, SAIL laboratory, is we were able to kind of automate a process that is done by, we have many PhDs on our research team uh, that are trained to analyze content, but allowed us to automate some of it. And so we were able to automate uh, extracting gender and also screen and speaking time. And what was so important for Gina uh, to have screen and speaking time, because A, you you couldn't do that with humans. And the other thing is, it's one thing to count on your fingers. Okay, I'm watching a movie. I'm watching a TV show. I can count how many how many female characters do I see. But it's another thing to say, well, if that female character is the lead or co-lead, is she on screen and is she speaking with the same weight as her male lead or co-lead? And what we found is that it was a third less. Now, what we've seen over the past at least 10 years or so that has gone up, which is good um, in terms of female lead characters, screen and speaking time, but no one really noticed it until we pointed it out. And then that comes down to what's the camera doing? Who's telling the cinematographer or the second AD where to point the camera? Why isn't it pointing at the female lead character? Why do you hear her off? Why is she not on screen? You know, so it's a lot of 
uh, technical things, but that's what that allowed us to do. And we're really excited because come November, uh, we're going to be presenting in partnership with Google new iterations um, of that tool. So we're hoping we can go even a little further. That's so exciting because when you're speaking, what's coming to mind for me is like almost like this period, like a pyramid. And on top, yeah, you have the actors and who's on screen, but then it's like you have directors, you have writers. It's like a whole process. And if you don't have equal representation from the bottom of the pyramid, you're never going to get that in that final product, which is what we, the public, are really watching. And so, yes, the study is so important, obviously, to see what's on screen. And we'll get into a little bit about the X-Files, like, study that really came out of with that with STEM. But when I was thinking about it, I'm like, this is great, but this is also showing where's the representation in who's directing or who's writing. How do you guys handle those conversations? Because obviously you're, like you said, you're a B2B, but the Bs that you're kind of selling to the studios are looking, I'm sure a lot with dollar signs versus what data is showing. That makes sense. Yeah. So this this also gets back to some principles that Gina set forth when she created the Institute. And back in 2004, if you were to, if you were to ask someone, what is your definition of diversity? Gender was not on the agenda. No one was thinking about it. If you would have said portrayals of gender in media, people would say to you, what? What is that? And so we wanted to focus on what's happening on screen because we knew that was the easiest thing to fix. However, and particularly if any of your viewing audiences has seen our documentary, This Changes Everything, historically, women have been discriminated against in terms of writers, directors, since the film industry became a real business. In the early, early days, you had Alice Guy Blachet, and you had some really powerful women. But when it became a big business, all of a sudden the women were kind of kicked to the curb. Everyone, every union, every everybody knows the gap when it comes to female directors, writers, etc. We didn't need to point that out. And, and that's conscious bias. But we truly believed that on-screen portrayals was really about unconscious bias. Bias. People at that time weren't thinking about it. They weren't thinking about, do I have an equal amount of male and female and non-binary, et cetera, LGBTQIA characters? No one was really walking through the script to look through it. You know, are we really reflecting our society uh, the way it should be? And don't get me started on genres like fiction, you know, science fiction and fantasy. It's the make-believe. It's space. I mean, I would think that you could be creating crazy aliens and monsters, then you can have a female that's actually leading the team. I understand that. And it's just crazy to me when you start to think about streaming platforms and we're constantly watching content. And after watching that documentary, which I would highly suggest that anyone to go watch it. It's on Netflix. After I watched it, I've watched it a few times, to be honest. 
but I told everyone about it. I was like, have you heard of this documentary? No, you need to go watch it. And then let's have a conversation because there was moments in it where I was just like, my jaw was on the ground, just couldn't believe what some of the interviewees were talking about and just watching this whole thing that how did it take until 2004 when Gina and you kind of really led this charge with the Institute for this not to be so apparent? I'm sure it was, but maybe people were afraid to speak up or this is just how it is. It blew my mind to see this, to be honest. And one thing that you guys talked about was, you know, Gina uh, went into archery and then you have Hunger Games and all of a sudden you see this huge rise in young girls wanting to do archery, just like with the X-Files STEM, all of a sudden, when you look at the demographics of who is in that industry, over 50% are in that industry. And if you really pare it back down to when they might've had to choose a major, it was around that show. So can you talk a little bit more about what, how representation really does play out in the real world? Absolutely. And going back to what you mentioned, uh, for those who may not realize, Gina qualified uh, and and tried out uh, for the Olympics. And uh, I think she was 32nd, ranked 32nd in the world. And it's something she took up in her 40s because her whole life, she was always tall and always felt very self-conscious. And it wasn't until she was in her late 30s and doing A League of Their Own and Long Kiss Goodnight and a lot of these movie roles, Cutthroat Island, where she had to learn some mad skills. She had to learn the skills. She had to be able to do those things. And people would say to her, you know, you've got talent. You've got athletic ability. She said, what, me? Anyway, so she had been watching the Olympics and thought, oh, the archery, it's beautiful. It's point-based. It's 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 um, measurable. And that's the whole archery thing. But what was interesting is that it was her archery coach called her up and said, hey, uh, girls' participation in archery shot up 105% in 2012. And we wanted to validate why. And it was not only because of Hunger Games, but what was the other movie? The Disney movie, um, Brave, right? Yes. So they saw the movies and they went out and bought a bow. It was instantaneous. And the same thing with the X-Files. Our friends at, at 20th Century uh, Fox at the time knew they had this they called it the Scully effect. They knew it and they asked us to validate it because the show was on air, I think, in the 1993 and then it was going off in 2013 and had been on and off the air. And so we surveyed uh, young women and women who were old enough to have watched the show. And 63% of the women who are working in STEM today are doing so because of the fabulous Jillian Anderson and that that character of of Scully. And so there is a cause and effect and and particularly for younger people content and the world of make believe can be a window into the world of work and career. People can see something and say I didn't know that was a job. Maybe that's something I want to do. You don't realize that watching Disney movies or shows growing up how much that really impacts you and 
causes you to look at what your possibilities really are. And I'm happy that the Institute is obviously working very hard to make sure that across screens, people can see not only possibilities, but also themselves. Obviously, women are 50% of the population, but now we're starting to get into an age where representation around different ethnic groups is starting to come in. Is the Institute working on that as well? Because I believe studies have come out and talking about in the next few years how we are going to be such more of a mixed um, society, not so black or white. In, and I mean that more in like terms of just conversation, not races. Mm-hmm. So we have always looked at the intersection of gender and race, ethnicity, gender and disability, gender and age. So we look at six dimensions when we do a research study, um, age 50 plus, um, large body diversity or inclusion, LGBTQIA, you know, disabilities, you know, and gender. So we end race, ethnicity. So we look at all of those dimensions. It's not just, you know, gender. And so that's always been really important for us to track, track that. Are there more female characters? Are these characters women of color, of female characters of color? Um, are they part of the LGBTQIA community? Do they have a disability? Because think about it. You can embody all of those dimensions. And so the intersectionality is really, really important because that is more uh, reflective of our society. As you mentioned, you know, we are a society of many different uh, colors and shapes of, you know, of, of the rainbow. Uh, so it's really important that we stay uh, vigilant and relevant to make sure that people who are tuning in and leaning in are actually able to see themselves on screen. And obviously we're such a more global world and we're moving away, I feel like, from those standard television stations where we're moving more to stream, streaming services. Has Have you and the Institute found that working with streaming services are more adaptable or open to having more representation throughout their shows versus like the standard you know, stations that we kind of grew up watching? I would say that in the past five to six years, all of the leading content creators uh, are very focused on diversity, equity, inclusion. They have established uh, top-notch executives who are in the business units versus say an HR function who are putting eyes on content and using that lens. And so therefore, you know, they are owning the platforms um, and starting their own platforms. They are selling to the existing, you know, platforms. And yes, the streaming platforms absolutely uh, have use a lens, you know, towards, towards that. Now, when you think about mediums, television episodic moves much, much quicker than say a feature film. And so on a TV series, you may have six to 13 different directors. That's an opportunity to infuse a lot of diversity. Whereas on a feature film, there's only one. And so, so the, the small screen 
medium can move more quickly. And also because of the proliferation, you have to feed it, right? All these streaming platforms, they need 24 hour content. Uh, so, so there's just a tonnage and volume and it's a numbers game, which can potentially create more opportunities because they have to make more content. No, that's a great way to put it. And what I do love about um, the Institute style is that you guys have a no blame, no shame policy, which I love because it's really easy to point fingers and say, you didn't have enough females on the screen or you don't have enough representation. Can you talk about where that no blame, no shame mentality came from? That was an operating dynamic that Gina set forth in the beginning, because again, she's a working actor and, uh, you know, I've spent over 30 years in the industry and we, we really wanted to embrace the industry, um, and, and really encourage them to do better and they want to do better. Uh, so we didn't see the point in shaming and blaming, we wanted to be more collaborative and work with them uh, behind the scenes. Uh, we do a lot of a lot of private consulting um, and embrace them and get them to do better. And, and we've been successful because we have been able to achieve a number of our key mission goals, which initially were gender parity for female lead characters and family films, which we did, uh, gender parity for female lead characters in family television, which we did. And then most recently last year, gender parity for secondary, you know, female characters, uh, which we also achieved in television. So our that's just our secret sauce and our way of advocating for change. And, and we believe that that's been the right path for us. No, because I think it's such a great partnership. It would make organizations want to work with you guys because it's not, you're not putting blame. You're like, how can we grow and be better together and let's help each other, which I think is the more empathetic way to go about any uh, conversation, to be honest. In August, the Gina Davis Institute on Gender and Media received the 2022 Governor's Award at the Emmys. What did that award and recognition mean to both you, Gina, and the Institute? First of all, it was a surprise. And I've been a member, a very active member of the TV Academy since the 90s. I was the chair of the board of directors for the TV Academy Foundation for many years. But in my wildest dreams, never thought that we would be uh, we would be awarded, you know, an Emmy for our work. So it was deeply, deeply inspiring to have the very target audience. Uh, that we've been working with um, recognize our contribution. So it was very, very deeply, deeply, you know, inspiring. I know when we talked during our pre-call, you mentioned that your mom was one of the most influential people in your life. What has she thought about all of this? You were the first one to go to school. You've had a phenomenal career. I'm sure she's proud. What has that meant for you well, unfortunately, my mom passed away almost five years ago, uh, but uh, both my parents had had and had such a great, you know, work ethic, and and I know, you know, they're both, you know, very very proud of me, and you know, well, the one thing though, like any mom or any parent would say, is take some time to smell the roses as well. So, um, 
How do you enjoy it? Because I feel like for me, it would be an endless to-do list. How do you find that balance if you have that balance or is that something you're working on? I think there's no such thing as balance. I think it's about priorities. Um, And it's also about recognizing when there needs to be self-care. So it's really about being organized and prioritizing. I think achieving balance, I I think that's kind of like, you know, a unicorn. It's a great visual. Absolutely. What are your goals for the next three to five years for the Institute? Do you guys have any big projects you're working on that you would like to share or where would you like to take this next? Well, what's interesting is next year will be our 20 year anniversary. So I'm very focused on what's the next 20. You know, what is the Institute? How are we going to evolve? Big projects that we're exploring is how do we take all of the great research and panel discussions and presentations and content that we have, and how do we turn it into something that can really benefit the public? Can we create uh, turnkey classes, um, SVOD classes? Can we, so that's an opportunity to say, how do we really share this with the world in a way that can be accessible? How do we influence, really influence the next generation of, of content creators? And so that's a really big idea that, you know, I hope over the next three years that could become a reality. Uh, I'd say the other thing is how do we help our partners do this work themselves? Um, how do we help them be organizationally ready? What are the tools and assessments that we can create for them? Because we don't want them to be dependent upon us. We want them to be able to do this and measure um, measure themselves. So that's another you know really big goal. I think we'll always be measuring the industry. It, we will always want to look at topics. A really big topic for us is the portrayal of mental health in children's television, which is really not included. And so we're working with some other partners. We're hoping we can get a major, major study funded. We believe it's very important when you look at what's happened with the fight against racial injustice, when you look at what's been happening with the pandemic, our kids uh, are experiencing more mental health issues than I think ever before. And I think it's an opportunity for our content creators to think about it and think about how can they use the medium to help. Uh, so those are those are some big, you know, big, big ideas that we have. I'm so excited to see this all come to fruition. I have no doubt it will. I'm excited to get more involved. But for those listeners who maybe want to get more involved with the organization, where should they go? Well, we have a website, which is cjane.org. Also, you can follow us on social media at Gina Davis org. And uh, we have a membership program, which works at an individual level that allows you to participate and attend our events either virtually or in person. Uh, if you're in LA and New York and we do some major cities uh, and it's an opportunity for you to have access to our 
on-demand library where you can really watch and see everything we've done, you know, since the beginning. So we we encourage you to join the Institute and become a member of our community. And listeners, I'll put all of this into this episode show notes with the link so it's easy for you to click as well. This has been such a pleasure to be able to speak with you. I've been looking forward to this all month. So thank you so much. I end every episode with the same three questions. The first question is, if you had a quote or a mantra that you live by, what would it be? Those who say it cannot be done should not interrupt those who are doing it. I love that. The second question is, if you could relive any one day, which day would you choose? Well, personally, of course, it would be my wedding. Uh, And I'd say professionally, I would love to relive those the Emmys every day. Absolutely. And then the last question is, if you had a theme song that played every time you walked into a room, which song would you choose? Well, I'm really going to date myself because I have a feeling most of your listeners may not know this artist or this song, but Helen Reddy, I Am Woman. Great. So I'll add that to the For Your Listening Pleasure Spotify playlist so listeners can hear that song along with all the other guests. Again, thank you so much. This has been such a joy to speak with you and I know how busy you are. So thank you so much. Thank you, Mallory. And thank you for all of your listeners that are taking time out of their day. So I'm very, very grateful.